You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. wanted to have a more casual um, atmosphere uh, for our discussion, so we decided to have this sort of modernist living room, all of us in black, everything black, so, <laughs> except for Marlon Scar. Um, it's been amazing to be here at the AGO in residence, and um, there's a lot of perks to this gig. Um, one of them has been to uh, be asked who I would like to have a chat with about art. And so um, when that opportunity came along, I immediately thought of Marla Haladi and Spring Hurlbuck, um, two artists whose work I've admired for many, many years. Um, and so on Tuesday, when we met in the studio to sort of have a pre-conversation conversation, conversation um, a lot of really... Uh, interesting things about our process, processes in the studio, how we overlap, how we differ, came up in our discussion. And I hope we can keep some of that candidness in uh, the way that we present our work tonight and also with you, the audience, and invite you to um, join with us afterwards for a conversation. Um, I also want to say I'm so happy to see um, friends that I haven't seen for a long time in the audience. And it's really thrilling to have you here, you know who you are. Um, so thanks so much, and to s my colleagues and students who have come tonight as well. So um, we're gonna start off by having Marla talk about her work. Oh no, I have to do something first. Sorry. <laughs> I Before we begin, I wanted to say a few things about what intrigued me about their work and how I connected with their work. And I need my glasses now. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about Spring first. Um, I first saw Spring's work in her installation at the ROM in 2001 called The Final Sleep. And I don't know how many of you saw that installation. It was one of those art experiences in my life that I will never forget. Um, and the work has remained with me to this day. Um, uh, Spring's going to talk more about that piece, so I won't go into any detail. But I think one of the things that always has connected me with Spring's work are the themes of mortality and loss, which resonate throughout her projects, and also, I believe, are ones which um, I connect with very much in my own work. And her work speaks so eloquently of our human frailty. And um, I've always loved the way that she works with materials in such an interesting and unique way and how they evoke um, these very complex relationships. So um, it's going to be a real treat to hear Spring uh, share her work with us. Um, Marla's work I also encountered uh, on a deeper uh, level in 2001 when she had her big power plant exhibition. And... Um, I followed Marla's work over the years and recently um, at a sound um, uh, 
workshop I did for a week with NASA, um, she came and presented again, and I was re-familiarized with how much I love her work. And what I've always loved about Marla's work is that she strikes this incredible balance, I believe, which is really difficult to do between this sort of conceptual elegance and rigor with this amazing intuitive sense of playfulness um, and openness in her work. And I, I love that um, in her sound sculptures, which we will discuss whether they are music or sound. We had a little interesting discussion about that. So um, I'm going to leave it at that and let each of them present, and then I will present last. So thank you both so much for agreeing to come. The timer is on. <clears throat> um, I'm a pacer, so it's going to be hard for me to think and sit. Um, and uh, we actually chose work based on what Sarah requested, so it's kind of entertaining to talk about work out of context. Um, but this is a great piece to begin with in a way because uh, my, I, I want to just say that my mother loves me. She worried for years about me, though, because I wasn't married. So she thought, oh, my God, you're never going to own any china until you get married. And I was like, Mom, it's okay. So she gave me china, and she showed up with a box of this china, and I really hated it. <laughs> I love my mother, so I took the china. Um, a very dear friend of mine showed up not long after to repair a sink for me. And he saw my china, and he said, oh, my God, you have that china. Can I give you some? And I was like, I, can't, I, I don't, I, I, before I could say I hate the china, he um, explained it was from his previous marriage, and he would love to get it out of his life. I mean, how could I say no to that? I couldn't. So he dropped off two more boxes of china. So now I have, and that's a lot of china. So I unpack it all, and it turns out I have three teapots. <laughs> I thought, I've got three identical teapots. I, I obviously have to do a kinetic teapot piece. Um, and I know that sounds kind of funny, but it was honestly the first thought I had. And, and it comes from a long process of being fascinated with Alvin Lussier. Alvin Lussier is a contemporary um, musician and, and sound artist, and he kind of... Uh, He's, he's sort of renowned for his ability, his, the way he talked about the resonant character of spaces. So he was a, um, a composer, but he really dealt with sound and space and had this real material sensibility. And he, he kind of, went, when a composer friend introduced me to him, I was, my mind was kind of profoundly altered. And he, at one point, did this piece. He, he did several versions of it, but one that he did... Uh, at the MoMA involved uh, putting portable sounding devices inside small resonant containers, so bags, teapots, anything that he could fit, a transistor radio, a small toy, into in order for people, well, in order to make a sound work, but also to un enliven people's ears to um, a wider range uh, of resonant possibilities. Um, now, one of the things he likes to talk about is uh, you have the, the sound of, of a gymnasium, which is very particular, but you also have the sound of a teapot, which is also very particular, and they're both equally uh, interesting from the spatial um, perspective. 
Um, he, but he did this piece with the teapot where he, it, it, it went with a, a pianist and he uh, stood at the piano and inside the teapot was a speaker. Uh, and as the piano part was going on, there was a orchestra coming off of this small speaker inside of the teapot. And what he would do is he would lift the lid up and down occasionally. And in doing that, wh what he was doing, he was, he was changing the resonant character of the space of the teapot. So the sound would change because he was changing the resonant character. And I thought to myself, being macho like I can be, I don't need to open and close my teapot lid. I can make a machine to do it. <laughs> so that's what uh, happened with this piece. This is Wawa Teapot Landscape for Alvin Luthier. And it's essentially two mechanized teapots uh, and obviously two teapots so you get a false stereo. So I'll let you um, hear it and then I can tell you a bit more. Sorry, we forgot we had to hit play. Hold on, you're getting a, an early preview. Okay, there we go. I should say that <coughs> wah-wahs are usually typically achieved with a, an effects pedal. Guitarists use them. And, um, I, I can actually talk endlessly about this piece because it was an incredibly important and pivotal piece for me on many levels. But I can say um, when I was trying to figure out what sound to put in it, I couldn't put an orchestra in it, obviously, because Lucy had already done that. So I, I decided to riff off of the landscape um, on the teapot itself, and I thought, well, I need a sound that's big, big landscape sound. So I ended up going with Rod Cooter's, uh, some really great intro riffs from one of his films, from one of the films where they uh, used his guitar. Uh, and that's why the wah-wah effect, because if you're gonna use a guitar, you have to wah-wah it. I, I, I'm gonna move on past this uh, piece uh, to the next piece, uh, which Sarah requested, which was the, it's the piano piece. And I wanted to, before I move on, I just, I want to say that this was a warm-up piece because I was afraid of the piano. So I thought, well, I should make the teapot piece first. Um, 
uh, and I should say that the, the whole thing is actually fabricated right down to the cabinet. Uh, it's very particularly done. Um, playing piano. Uh, <laughs> and the conversation we had earlier this week, Sarah said to me, yeah, I, you know, I've been really engaged in music, and I don't think of what you do as music. I mean, I'm probably paraphrasing terribly. But <laughs> you are. I, <laughs> I laughed because I thought, oh, everything I do is so much about music. This is great. Uh, you were probably thinking of the floor piece, which I end at. Yeah. Um, when I did the piano piece, I had, in a very lighthearted way, uh, asked a curator to get me a p If you wanted me to have a show, he had to get me a piano. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, there's no way he's going to get me a piano. I won't have to do the show. And then he called me up the next day and said, you wouldn't believe it. I got Somebody just donated a piano to me. So the piano sat there for, two, I think, almost two years before I could manage to touch it. And I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to stop the anecdotes to say that, do you know how many piano pieces are out there just by artists? It's amazing. There's a, this incredible genre of not, I mean, I began because I actually wanted to make a piano piece because I, I had been doing so much stuff around sound. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a piano piece in the way that composers write piano works? Or, you know, I wasn't even thinking about artists doing piano pieces until I got the piano and I started researching it. Uh, and I ended up, after thinking about the huge things you could do to a piano, I went in a way that I really needed to go at that moment, which was to engage in another um, um, important reference point in terms of experimental music for me, and that's John Cage's Prepared Pianos. Um, and I, I would like to say that the minute... And I think this is true of any machine. As soon as a machine is invented, somebody's trying to change it. So as soon as a piano was invented, somebody was trying to prepare it, make it sound different. And that, that happened, uh, you know, a century before Cage actually prepared a piano. Um, but he's sort of well known for it in the experimental music world. So I decided to prepare this piano in the way a mechanically prepared, already mechanical piano. And Again, the macho side of me came out, and I have to start to be a little more cautious of that voice because I thought, oh, anyone can prepare a grand piano because grand pianos, their strings are horizontal. That's easy. You just put things in those strings, and it, they sit there. And then when you play the piano, the strings vibrate, and it alters the sound of that string. But when you have an upright piano, all the strings are vertical way, way harder. So uh, I started by having, because it was a reproducing player piano, it meant it already had things in it to play the piano. So I had to kind of explode the piano a bit so I could get at the strings. And I started by bringing up the paper roll and, and the roll player. And if you take a, a, a closer look, you can see um, not only it now is it suspended above the piano, uh, but these two things, oh, pointer. these two things here, oh, I love the pointer. Uh, these are microphones. So what they're doing is they're amplifying the sound of air being uh, sucked into the pneumatic system, which allows the, uh, the player piano to work. 
Um, and this, uh, this looks a bit dark, but I have a nice de detail. This is the main pneumatic drive, and I had to pull that pneumatic drive out of the piano in order to get at the strings in the lower part of the piano. Uh, and, oops, there we go. And of course, uh, here is another microphone amplifying uh, the sound of the bellows. And below, where I'd taken those bellows out, the main bellow drive, I inserted a few machines. This one here is um, a strumming machine, of course. Henry Cowell was uh, John Cage's teacher, and one of the um, preparations he would do in his compositions is he would direct his pianist to reach into the piano and strum the strings. So many of the decisions I made as I was preparing the piano was based on some of these composers, what they had done with their own preparations. This, um, interestingly enough, is a modified part of a, a Xerox machine that I altered to make the strumming machine. Um, here's a detail of the motor that is the strummer. And right above it, this part, that's the pie plate press machine. That's, that's a John Cage thing. And uh, if you, it, one of the rules I gave myself was I could only make the piano sound. So what it, I couldn't put a sound somewhere else in the room. I had to actually get it out of the piano. So I took a couple of tubes off of the piano and stuck them on machines with whistles so it would whistle as well. Uh, and uh, this is the back of the piano. And what you, that's actually not a very useful image in a way. But on the back, there's the two surface resonating speakers that amplify all of the sounds that are being microphoned through the piano itself. Um, I think we're, oh, uh, I'm trying to pick up my Stephen Gibby behind. Okay, so old technology, new technology. The old technology is literally turned on by a foot switch by the attendant at the front of the gallery and the entire piece goes on. Uh, but the new technology is uh, here in the, oops, sorry, I'm getting all, I'm trying to go too fast. Uh, here in the sensors that control all the individual preparations that um, uh, then play along with the piano playing itself.
took a, I'm not sure if this is microphone, so took a piece that would have taken about four minutes to play and slowed it down, so it took about 45 minutes to play. So it was really a, a found um, perforated role of an existing uh, early jazz team, actually. Um, I'm going to move a bit more quickly uh, past the last tea that Sarah requested. <laughs> um, a case for sound uh, actually fits in interestingly in terms of musical instruments. Uh, I, I was actually uh, asked to do a commission uh, it derived out of a curatorial interest uh, by two uh, people in Ottawa where they invited, they wanted to have two artists make audio works ideal for listening in a car while driving at night. Oh, those curators. <laughs> really, how much more specific can you get? <laughs> so I was like, okay. And then they said, but... We're going to launch it in a bus so that lots of people can experience the sound piece together while driving at night. And I thought, and we're going to outfit the bus in 5.1 surround sound. And I was like, okay, now I'm, are you sure you're asking the right person here? I mean, I've never done high fidelity in my life. So once I, and we, we talked a little bit about how we, we get ourselves caught up in this idea of what we think we should do. But once I realized I could just make use of the social space of the bus and not use the 5.1 surround sound, I thought, I am, I am free now. So I uh, designed these cases that were the same size as an LP, but they're actually uh, um, playback instruments. And I did a, an eight-part audio work um, that when the audience was experience, experiencing this piece in the bus, they would actually pass these instruments around uh, the space of the bus as it was moving through this kind of really dark um, uh, environment of, of Gatineau, actually. Um, so what you get to see is a recording session, actually, a recording session of, of the piece after the launch in the bus for people to download and play in their cars when they're driving around. I'm sure things will come up in the discussion. I'm going to end there, sort of slightly unresolved, because I'm, um, I'm actually over time. Thank you. I'll pass it over to Frank.
too am uh, in the position of um, presenting works chosen by Sarah. And uh, so we have our mandate tonight and we're proceeding as, as requested. And uh, <laughs> it and totally was. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Let me start off with the slide. Okay. Um, I'm, um, my work is silent tonight, I'm afraid to say, because uh, you'll just be hearing my voice. Um, this work um, was done uh, as very early work of mine, and um, it's called the Sacrificial Ornamental Series. And um, the Sacrificial Ornamental Series is based on classical Greek architecture in a highly stylized manner. These uh, moldings actually refer to the body of the sacrificial victim, both human and animal. Uh, this is my molding. It's called um, a triglyph frieze. And there is a compelling mystery surrounding the origins of classical architecture. It is not just about mathematical uh, perfection and the ideal. Rather, ornament has a bloody and pagan past. Classical ornament encompasses the sacred, which in the French language has retained its dual meaning as both sacred and detestable. Sacrificial ornament concerns itself with the dual meaning um, of taboo. The victim is sacrificed for the congregation's sins and the atonement of the gods. So this, again, is a detail of the triglyph um, ornamental molding. And uh, it was one of the most sacred uh, ornaments in Greek um, um, ornamental vocabulary. And uh, this is a traditional triglyph um, molding that you would see on a bank frieze in Toronto. Um, and I took the liberty, triglyph meaning tri means three, and glyph means to cut. And so what I did was I was referring back to the pagan sources, and I used cast human femurs and inserted them instead of the abstracted bars into the ornament. And that's how we, um, we um, ha for, my, for my purposes, I feel we've lost the kind of connection to maybe a more um, imperfect time when things were... Um, um, quite different in, in uh, the practice of uh, Greek religion where sacrifice was an imperative. And I'm just going on to another body of work from the Sacrificial Ornamental Series. These are called the Lingual Consoles. And unlike my earlier mandate of con conforming to the perfection of classical canons, the Lingual Consoles boldly disrupt the notion of the ideal. I confess that I have been long inspired by Mannerist architecture. The Mannerists were always breaking down classical conceptions of beauty and architectural logic. The physicality of the cast tongues emerging out of the consoles appear to look like an artifice. The tongues are licentious, a force no longer contained. A sense of the exaggerated and the artificial pervades. Conflict and contradiction exist between the natural and the constructed.
this is um, a project I did um, both at the power plant and then reinvested this, a different piece at the Musée d'Art Contemporaine. And this piece was shown in uh, 2009 at the Musée de, uh, the, the museum in uh, Montreal. And uh, so each crib here has its own history, even though the sleepers remain a mystery to us. The infant mortality rate was extremely high during the, the period of these beds, and a child's bed could easily become a child's deathbed. And this is when it was reconfigured in the north of Paris. So they asked me to do um, a garden outside. So these are the beds and the, the gardens. And my sound piece here was the birds singing in the trees. So that was uh, pretty appropriate. And this is actually a cemetery from the south of France. And I found it quite incredible that the beds looked so much like the beds in um, that were constructed for children and infants. And this piece we, you might be familiar with. This is from um, the ROM, and it's called The Final Sleep. And um, The Final Sleep, um, let me just move through some of this. I'll just say a bit about museums and what I was what I was kind of um, moving towards. Um, the museum presentations of natural history in the Americas tend to rely on illusion. They try to animate the departed. The installations that I, I'm interested in move away from the idea of the museum as illusion of life toward the idea of the museum as a cultural mausoleum. My interpretation of the ROM collection was to exhibit a monocratic, uh, excuse me, a monochromatic museum within a museum that constitutes a final resting place for specimens and artifacts that had achieved an immortality in their conservation and classification. There is, no there is no chronology, hierarchy, or illusion of life in the final sleep. All things were equal in repose. Um, just to give you a bit of an idea of what I was doing was, uh, these birds are, are albino birds. The middle bird is a peacock. The bird... Um, Oh boy, does this work? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. Ah, right. I think this was either a crow or a robin. But the whole idea existed um, for me when I was trumping around the ROM for six months, not knowing what I would do. Um, I was in, um, I was telling this to Sarah and Marla, that what in fact happened was, um, as I trumped around, I had no idea what I would do. I was in orn ornithology. Um, Mark Peck, the ornithologist, 
checked out very quickly um, the situation, and um, he realized I wasn't interested in the exotic birds, and he dragged out the albino robin, and that's when I knew I had a project. And this is 50 million year old coprolite, which is basically shit. And um, two different species of monkey, and um, also um, a rabbit, taxidermied rabbit looking at us, uh, study skin. And my own collection of baby boots in the foreground, and the Batashu Museum and the Rom's collection of um, women's footwear. And my own collection of embalming bottles. Um, I'm going to um, introduce this work. This is Doi 1 and Doi 2. These are the ashes of um, an infant who survived only a few hours after she was born. Her name is Scarlett. And um, I was permitted by Scarlett's mother to work with the um, different um, um, particles and, and remnants of what remained of her. And this is her, her bag. So a very, very small bag, but very, very significant. And this person um, is known to Sarah. Her name, uh, somewhat known to Sarah, is known as Mary Pocock. And um, I was given permission to use Mary Pocock. Um, and I'm very grateful. And this was um, my assistant, as well as Arno Mag's assistant. His name was Galen Comer. And Gail, when we were in England, we got a call saying that Galen had died in, an, in, a, in a bicycle accident. And um, it was a very shocking moment. But um, his parents generously allowed me to use his ashes. And this is Pee-wee the Poodle. And Pee-wee was one of the Wanda Coop's dogs. And this is Pee-wee again. And this is Sweetie, another one of Wanda Coop's dogs. And this is my father, James. And my father, James, again. And my father, James, again. And this is a new series of work I'm working on. It's called the Malavich Suite. So the Malevich suite, the compositions are based on Kazmir Malevich's compositions. So I've overlaid ash on top of the compositions. So the paintings are not just paintings now, but they actually represent a human being that's been overlaid onto an abstract geometrical form. But one of the things that I wanted to read to you tonight was, is not so particular to Malevich but is particular to the ashes in general. And I just wanted to um, do a small excerpt from Waiting for Godot. And I'm just going to stand up and do this. Okay. Waiting for Godot. This is a paraphrase, and it starts out with Estragon speaking. Estragon says, All the dead voices. Vladimir says, 
They all speak at once, Estragon, each one to itself. Vladimir, what do they say? Estragon, they talk about their lives. Vladimir, to live is not enough for them? Estragon, they have to talk about it. Vladimir, to be dead is not enough for them? Estragon, it is not sufficient. So I think, I think that now I will move into, because of timing, I think I'll move into the, the video airborne. Okay. And when I was showing Mary Popak, um, I wanted to thank Marcus Schubert for the honor of allowing me to use Mary's ashes because he's here tonight. Thank you again. I'll just mention that this work is an excerpt from a video and Robert and Grania are the are going to be presented in an altered state as as ashes coming out of cremation urns. hand over the mic to Sarah. Thank you both so much. That was so amazing. Um, you know, listening to you both talk and looking at your work, it struck me that um, often when Marla was presenting, I was moved to laughter. And often when Springy was presenting, I was moved to tears. And I was thinking about how, and this is, you know, I'm just formulating this, but I was thinking about why I brought you two together in conversation. And maybe there's something about the two sides of that, or the kind of work perhaps that I'm attracted to that goes to this very deep place in us. Um, I had a conversation. I'm working with seven singers right now at the AGO as I'm here in residence, and I had a conversation with one of them this morning about the choral piece I'm working on called A Morning Chorus, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And we had this whole conversation about the importance of silence and humor in something that's also very serious in a way that it gives the audience a kind of break so that they can absorb things. So I thought that was really interesting. So um, I have oh, 15 minutes, and I will. Um, I want to show you a few things um, that relate to uh, more recent work. You give me your timer. Okay. Five, four, two, four. Oh, you have details. <laughs> um, while. Uh, this lovely gentleman is setting. It's setting. It's ready. Okay. The video is actually ready to go. I'm going to start with um, a short one-minute clip from a video uh, that goes back to 2000 called Snow. And the reason I wanted to start with this piece was that 
I wanted to talk about moving into working with sound. Um, uh, my studies were in photography primarily. Um, in university, I also started doing video work. And quite quickly, when you start working with video, you realize, oh my, if I shoot something with a video camera, it also records sound. And um, that sounds really basic, but you begin to realize that you have to consider silence and if you're using sound, what that sound will be and why are you using it and how are you using it. And that was a really interesting challenge for me. And uh, over the years, I've worked with composers, um, I've worked with sound designers, and now I'm working with singers. Um, and I have a colleague here who worked with me at the Canadian Opera Company um, many years ago who can attest to the fact that I've used to work there and I've been going to the opera for many years. And so for me, music and singing uh, is something that I've loved and has really, it's becoming more primary in the work that I'm doing. So this piece um, that I'm going to show you just a quick minute of, um, I'm introducing because it also um, is made with uh, home movies uh, and vernacular imagery has been at the core of my work for many years. Um, early on, I used um, home movies, photographs, found family images to really explore my own cultural heritage, my own identity. But in the last five years, I would say, or more, I've started to, to work more with found materials and vernacular images that don't belong to me. They're either borrowed or found in flea markets or purchased on eBay. Um, and so I want to show this first clip because it brings together those two interests both um, vernacular imagery and my work with sound. In this piece, I worked with Toronto composer Tom Fave. Okay, it's five minutes. We can watch it another time. Um, anyway, um, that video is a series of the ends of Super 8 films. And so it's essentially ending after ending after ending um, brought together in one piece. And the snow is really referring to those white dots which flicker and appear over the images. And some of you who up with home movies would be familiar with those dots and essentially it was a number code that uh, Kodak punched into the film and uh, when you're watching the films essentially they appear as these 
in the last few seconds of the film. And when I was growing up, my uncle would always be the one who, you know, rolled out the old Super 8 projector and would drag out those movies. And, and I was always thrilled to watch those films. And those last few seconds are so excruciating when those dots come up because they signal the end. And, and they really speak to, for me, this moment where I don't want the story to end. I want those keep... I want those happy moments to keep on rolling, and they just don't. And it really, for me, speaks conceptually to the idea that these films are constructions, um, as are most vernacular images. They, they speak to these happy moments in our lives, the highlights of our lives, the, the times that people want to remember. Um, and it, so in a way, everybody's home movies are kind of the same, or everybody's family albums are kind of the same. Um, and so, Moving from that to this piece, now this is a 12-year jump. Um, I find myself working with a found family photograph that I purchased on eBay. Um, this piece came about, uh, this piece is called the, the Anonymous Chorus. This piece came about in a way quite accidentally, and I want to speak, some, you know, something that we talked about in the studio was really, had something to do with process and with being in this place where you're stuck. And, um, uh, and you're frustrated in your work, and, and you feel like you've made a big mistake. And I had reached this, this year of research and realized that the work that I thought I was gonna make wasn't really going anywhere, and I was really frustrated. And so I went to the Toronto Island, and I, you know, out of that sort of letting go, this piece came forward. And what I decided at that time was that I'd surrounded myself in this residency with all these found photographs that I had purchased on eBay that I had collected from flea markets. There were all these portraits of men and women, and I thought, wow, you know, these were someone's mother and someone's brother and someone's, you know, uncle, and, and now they don't belong to anyone, and no one cares about these people anymore, and they've totally lost their identities. And to me, it sort of speaks to this innate promise in the photograph. You know, we, we take photographs of people and we think, oh, you know, I'll take this portrait of someone and I'll keep them. But we never really can. You know, the photograph, once it becomes unmoored from its origins, um, these people become lost. And so I was thinking about all these lost people that I had brought with me to the island. And I thought, well, what can I do with them? How can I have them speak again? And that's when I had the idea that I could give them voice by creating a choral work. And so in this work, the sound and the video piece, which I'll show you a clip of, really came together concurrently. I knew that I wanted to work with a group of singers, that I wanted to create a sound piece, but that I also wanted to work with a photograph and speak about photography and how photography um, is ephemeral. Um, and that the object fades and disappears. So I'm going to show you um, uh, a couple of minutes of this. Um, and
this kind of just shows you the space, and then we'll get into the video proper, but um, the piece was projected life-size and uh, with surround sound. Sorry to have to stop it, but we are running out of time. <laughs> um, I do want to mention a few things about the work. Um, putting together the soundtrack was a very interesting process. Um, what I did was research music of the period that this photograph was taken, and through examining it under uh, a magnifying glass and by looking at the flag, which had 48 stars, I was able to tell that the photograph was taken somewhere around 1912. And um, there are only things we can assume about it, that it's a very large family group um, gathered for an extended family occasion of some kind, um, and that we assume it's an American family because they're under an American flag. So based on some of those ideas, um, I looked at what kind of uh, music was popular during that period and uh, discovered that um, there were a lot of piano. Piano music was primarily a way that people learned music in the home or they sang in church a lot. Um, but I found that kind of vernacular music gave the photograph or the work a sort of sentimental direction that I, I didn't want for it. So I began to research other musicians um, that were composing in the period, and I discovered Charles Ives. And Ives was a very interesting early 20th century composer who loved uh, vernacular music. Um, he was a church organist, and he used popular music in a lot of his compositions. And I felt the spirit of Ives and his love of the popular man was what I was looking for for this piece. So although this is a, um, an actually an original composition that we put together. There are snippets of Ives um, um, pieces throughout the work and a couple of solo songs. So you were just hearing the beginning of one that he wrote, which was actually a lullaby. Um, so I have to leave it at that for the time that we have. Um, I'm going to move on now to crazy things I've done with vernacular images. Um, during the same time that I was working on, it, it looks like an, a big jump, but in my mind, somehow it all fits together quite beautifully. Um, during the same time that I was working on the anonymous chorus, I also was thinking about these carte de visites that um, I purchased on eBay that were taken during the 19th century. And for those of you that aren't familiar with carte de visites, they were an incredibly popular form of photography at that time. I call it the 19th century's form of Facebook, basically. And 
These photographs were traded uh, amongst family and friends and were very, very easy to come by. And um, I started thinking about how, again, these people had lost their identities. And around this time that I had um, set myself to this desert island to contemplate my artistic career, <laughs> as it were, on the Toronto island, um, I started to read theories of memory. And I came across one which spoke of trying to locate a particular memory um, equated with trying to locate an, a bird in an aviary filled with birds. And it wasn't that that moved me to making these, these photographs in this way, but I began to look at that period that photography came out of in the 19th century and to look at the period of colonization and this really interesting role that the photograph, the camera, I should say, played in aiding the colonial enterprise and in sort of conquering the world and supporting that taking of species from anywhere. And I felt that there was this interesting correlation between um, that sense of permission that the camera gave us to, to go around all over the world and collect things and bring them back. And the 19th century enterprise of collecting species. The other thing that was going on, of course, during this time is, was this huge interest in natural history and also a huge interest in superstition that existed simultaneously. And that was a very odd. So it was all these ideas that really came together in, in this aviary series. So these are um, endangered and extinct birds that I photographed at the Royal Ontario Museum. So this is where Spring and I overlap uh, here in the ornithology collection. I, or I photographed these three years ago and then I, um, through a lot of Photoshop manipulation, uh, created these human bird creatures, which I see as these creatures in a state of empathy. So uh, this is the passenger pigeon, which is upstairs. This is the, the male version. Pan, these are all extinct birds. Loggerhead shrike, which is highly endangered right now. Uh, spotted owl, bobolink. I am really running over time, so um, let me look at the time here. I think it's just eight now. So maybe I'll very, very quickly mention the work that is at the Koffler Gallery right now. I'm in a group exhibition with some wonderful artists, including Bid Engelvitz, who's here. And um, Mona Phillip uh, curated this wonderful exhibition called We're in the Library. And each of the artists was asked to respond to the idea of the school library. And I created this work called The Readers. And um, I'm going to play a little sound clip for you, but I want to quickly show you the work. It's um, based on the idea of uh, books that remain with us. So once the library's gone and the readers are gone, what are the books that we carry with us inside ourselves from childhood? So I asked a number of people to respond, and uh, these were 10 books that uh, were selected from the responses that I received from adults about their favorite and most important books. And these are um, casts of the, the spines of those books which are in the wall. And 
then I created a sound work, but in addition to the sound work, I created these small books, which are based on gem tintypes that I also purchased on eBay. And um, these are children that have disappeared. So this was a school album that I found uh, with these portraits of children in them. And of course, a tintype, like all photographs at some point, will disappear and fade. Tintypes fade to black. And so I made these accordion books, which show how each of these tintypes will eventually disappear. And in the cover, where the red part is there, you'll see the original tintype inside the box. So I'll quickly play you just a very short snippet of the sound clip. Oops, hmm, it worked in rehearsal. stop there, but the show's up until the 19th of January. You can see it yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you, all of you. We have some time for questions, so if anyone would like to ask a question to Annie or all of the panelists, you can let me know by waving your hand in the air. I'm going to bring a microphone to you because we're recording for audio podcasts. And if you're still thinking of questions, I, I have one that I'll ask while, while you think on it. Oh, okay. I won't go with yours. No, that's all right. But if there's a quiet moment, I'll come back with mine. So. Um, there seems to be a thread throughout all of your work um, with animating or reanimating. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about your desire, your pull toward that? Why you feel that that's something that you'd like to do? Give a voice to something that was silent before? Uh, do you want to answer that? <laughs> 
not really a way I would I think, but I guess uh, uh, I mean, I guess I could come to that question in a few ways, and I'll just say a couple of things, and then uh, I'll give it to you guys. But um, it's always tempting to evoke uh, John Cage's four minute and 33 seconds in that kind of moment where this idea with, I think, through sound, um, this idea of animation is a way to, to, to look at this idea of, of sound and silence and the fact that something really isn't, there is no such thing as silence, really. And so I think of animation and a, the, the, the desire to, to, to animate something, um, a way to begin to pay attention to, 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 to the smaller qualities of sound. So it's like a kind of a, 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 a just a way to look at non-sounds in a way. Not that this work so much talks about that part of my practice, but um, sort of a backwards way of answering it. I I have um I have a quote. I've been waiting to use this quote. I know. May I? Do I have a permission? Thank you so much. Okay. Um, well, actually, I'm I'm taking I'm stealing a quote um, from Maya Sutnik, who wrote, uh, wrote about my work. But I I think it's appropriate right now to um, actually say this quote, and it goes like this: William Blake the early 19th century artist and poet believed that the vis visionary imagination contained no birth, no death, no beginning, and no end. It constituted a perpetual journey through eternity. So there we have it. We have something resurging and resurging and resurging. And um, it, interested, it interests me quite a lot in relation to the work that I do with... Um, um, human and um, animal ashes. In a way, um, while they're only matter, it's dust um, and um, and uh, n nothing nothing more. For me, each person was an, was an entity, each person um, um, deserving um, a, a fair a fair and, and considered um, uh, situation. I felt, in fact, like I was ma having a collaboration with the person, and often they would not cooperate with me, and often they would not reveal themselves. It was in the very rarest opportunities that I caught a glimpse of them, and um, I had to be very content and grateful for that. So there I am. Um, I'm not sure if I can give a direct answer to the notion of animation, but I think what I've been doing for the last little while is looking at a lot of found imagery and thinking of the context around that object, both as a photographic object, but also um, as the person with, within the image. And those are two different things. And so I, perhaps that's, Perhaps that speaks to a, a notion of animation somehow, but I'm looking at histories, um, 
for example, if I think about the anonymous chorus image, I really wanted to bring that photograph to life for a short time. And so in a very subtle way, the scale was extremely important, as was the surround sound, because I wanted you to be implicated in the image space, and I wanted the image space to enter your space so that for a short time, you lived at the same space. And I think that speaks a little bit to what uh, Spring just, just said so beautifully, that Maya just said so beautifully. In your um, large photograph, uh, which you surmise is American, uh, and the big family gathering, it was a still photo, was it not? Yes. But I could have sworn <laughs> that I saw it move. That's, that's the animation part. <laughs> Coming right back. Yes, it did move. How, how did you do that? Oh, there's tricks. Okay, she's not going to tell you. Yes, I can tell you. <laughs> There's this magical program called After Effects that you can do magical things with. So I'm glad that you weren't sure, though, because that was the point, that it was to catch you a little bit off guard. I didn't want it to be obvious, so I'm glad that, because I think that uncanny response, a number of people told me that, you know, when they were watching it, that, at first, they didn't notice the flag was moving, and then they saw the flag move, and then they started looking and noticing all kinds of other things moving, too. So I think that response was what I was looking for, so I'm glad you weren't sure. Okay, it's a follow-up question um, from Catherine. Oh, wait. Oh, Excuse there's me? Oh, okay. Well, where? Show me the hand. No, it's okay. I'll, I'll ask it as I walk. Uh, just uh, when did you or how did you come to decide to animate the photo? Was that an immediate thing when you had the source photo? Um, hmm. Pretty immediate. Pretty immediate. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I knew that um, I wanted to bring it to life. I knew I wanted it to be life-sized, and that was really important. And then I soon realized that I wanted to have, at some point in the video, this little spotlight moves through and shows you the portraits individually. And so it just evolved from there, essentially. Oh, oh. yeah, my question was just about, over here, this is, this is okay. Um, just about your work with, uh, like I noticed um, the person in the front was saying how she noticed how it moved. Like, I also noticed the water. Was that um, intentional, like bringing it back to its, um, like how photos are, are developed in the black room? Yes, indeed. Um, there's two things that I was thinking about in the video. One is to take you through the life of a photographic object and also to take you into the portraits and into the, the images as well. So it's sort of doing two things simultaneously. One is dealing with just the life of this object, how it came to be an image, and then how it passes into oblivion, but also at the same time the glimpse that we get of the people in it that this object carries. When I was, when I was looking at your um, 
that last piece. I, I felt like you evoked the theater to me, and I heard you say uh, that you had this long-standing love of opera and the Canadian Opera Company. Have you worked in set design, or have you? It, um, yeah, it's, it, it felt a bit like um, a stage light when it moved about and made me also not know. I mean, I guess if I was in the big room, maybe it would be more apparent, but I also was going, I couldn't tell if it was just evoking the life of the actor. Well, I haven't, but considering that I'm working with singers now and I'm designing costumes, I don't know what's going to happen next, so who knows. And I, I think the opera, I know I have dear friends here that are opera lovers and one colleague, as I mentioned, it really gets in your blood, and I think it's starting to come out in weird ways that I didn't know would ever happen. So it's possible, who knows. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. The question about animation I found kind of fascinating uh, and just was thinking that uh, really it, it seems like another word for the creative process that, you know, to animate is to bring to life. And indeed, <laughs> that's what you do. What, what you have all done is sort of brought things to life to energize them in a way that the people who are experiencing them can take in that energy. So I think you're all wonderful. <laughs> I think so too. Um, so on that note, I think we're gonna we're gonna end. Can I can I say one more thing? After Sarah says something. We're well, Marla wanted to say something more about something. Oh, I, so. yeah, I'm, I don't need to. <laughs> to. I want you to. Well, it's, it was just, after we all got talking about animation, I was like, no, wait a minute. There's this impulse for animating things that I ha hadn't been thinking about that was a little more less obscure than what I said, which is just this, if you think about, um, if I think about it in terms of uh, music performance and composition in my practice, uh, it's this desire to to have these performers to have this music play out essentially and the animation is necessary in order to hear the composition so that's my desire to be a composer I guess but don't tell the composer I said that I'm not a it'll be our secret so um, thank you Marla Spring and Sarah for agreeing to do this and sharing these insights into your work it was really remarkable so thank you very very much Before you all depart into the long, cold night, um, next week, Jackman Hall at 7 o'clock, Sarah Angelucci will be here in conversation with Bridget Stutchbury, Mark Peck from the ROM, who we mentioned tonight, and Matthew Brower talking about art and extinction, um, a bird's eye view. So that's a public program, Jackman Hall, the 15th, 7 o'clock. And Sarah mentioned briefly a performance that she's developing with seven singers, which is called the Morning Chorus that's happening here at the AGO on Wednesday, February 5th. So that's in Walker Court, and I hope you can all join us at both.
those events. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.